Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We have been in the book of Jeremiah for the last month. We're going to change gears. We're still in the same series, uh, the uh, series, The Person God Uses. But we're going to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Last week, in part 4 of our series, we uh, investigated the means to persevere in obedience And today in uh, part five, we're going to look at a passage in Judges chapter seven. Really, when you you look at the story of this guy Gideon in Judges chapter six and seven, what you see is a portrait of a man who was very reluctant to respond to God's calling. And those of you who know the story, you recall that whole business with the dew and the fleece and the dew, I mean, twice. And you may recall the beginning of the story when the angel of the Lord first appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And Gideon's response is something like, Who, me? Are you talking to me? You know, I'm like the wimpiest dude in the weakest clan. Not exactly ready to step up. Uh, Funny the way things turned out, though. I mean, it's not exactly, you know, here my Lord, send me. Uh, But as we'll see, the story really isn't about Gideon. The story is about somebody else. Now, the way this story actually unfolds, I kind of divide it into, into three acts. Almost like it's a stage play. Act one... I call the downsizing of the men. So in Judges chapter 7, look at verse 1 there with me. It says, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves, saying, I have saved myself. Now, can you imagine what Gideon must have been thinking when God told him that? I mean, he's probably looking down into that Midianite Valley. He's seeing that massive spread of tents and soldiers and weapons and animals. And he's thinking, what? I've got too many men? You call that strategy, Lord? You want me to whip 135,000 Midianites, and yet, even though the odds are four to one, I've got too many? Yeah, obviously that didn't make much sense to him. But God's purpose is actually made plain here in verse 2. This was to be God's battle. He wanted to show that he was the one true God. You know, his honor had to be vindicated in the sight of these these heathen Midianites. He wanted to show that there was a shield of protection around his chosen people, Israel. And I personally think it was also a test of faith for the children of Israel. But in order for God to be glorified, and in order for his purpose to be achieved, it had to be made clear that it was by his hand and his alone that they're going to be delivered. 
Because, you know, I think there's always this tendency, I mean, certainly back then and probably even more so today, when we come out of a trial, when we're delivered from a difficult time, we like to think to, to ourselves, hey, I, I pulled myself out of that pretty good. Yeah, that's not the way it, it is here. So in order to make sure Israel wouldn't give all the glory to itself, God issues the order to reduce the size of the army. Look at verse 3. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. So now we've, we've kind of separated the wheat from the chaff, maybe, you know, the men from the boys. You know, 22,000 said, you know what? <clears throat> I think I'm going to go home. I'm going to get me a couple of chili dogs and a big orange drink. I'm going to prop up my feet and I'm going to watch the Dallas Cowboys lose again this week. <laughs> but you know, the, the presence of the faint-hearted could serve as a weakness to any army rather than a strength. But none of that really mattered because we've already seen why the Lord was doing what he was doing. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And if you say, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go, he cannot go. Gideon's probably thinking, Lord, you've already cut my forces by two-thirds. Now you want me to get rid of more? Verse 5, so he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with anyone who kneels to drink. Well, you know, Lord, I, I don't want to tell your business, but I think it might make more sense to select or reject soldiers according to maybe their physical strength, uh, you know, military prowess, experience, age, but hey, if that's what you want to do, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> you know, actually, there's an important lesson there that obedience is important, even when we don't understand why God is doing something. We need to be obedient. Verse 6, the number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink water. So most of these guys have just flunked the test. I mean, they simply, you know, they kind of tossed their weapons and things aside. They ignored the danger of the nearby enemy, and they just went to sucking up that water. Now, the other group, they were much more alert much more prepared. They, they, they kept their, their heads up, kept their eyes peeled, and the whole time they're drinking, they're keeping their eye on the nearby enemy. But the way they drank was they would dip their hands into the water, and then they would, just like a dog drinks, <laughs> lap it right out of their hands. But by doing it that way, we see that they were ready to go at a moment's notice. So in verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. Now, the meat of what we're going to talk about mostly this morning is found in verses 1 through 8, but I think for the sake of those of you who maybe haven't read the story in a while, let me kind of cruise through the rest of this passage and give you an idea of how this plays out. So far, we've seen in Act 1 the downsizing of the men. Act 2, I would call the dream of the Midianite. Uh, verse 9, we begin to see that unfold. Now, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you already know the rest of the story. In fact, if you're old enough, you probably remember the story being dis displayed in, in a flannel graph. Uh, 
Yeah, if it goes back that far, you've, you've been around a while. Uh, but you'll recall how Gideon takes his servant and together they, they sneak down into that valley where the Midianites are camped. Or, you know, if you want to use good uh, Arklatex grammar, they snuck down into that valley. But here's what happened. Verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now, in ancient Near Eastern culture, dreams were a big deal. Dreams were believed to have significance. Not only did the Midianite soldiers take this dream as an omen, but the eavesdropping Gideon did as well. Now, it's interesting that in this dream, Gideon was symbolized as a loaf of barley bread. Because in ancient Palestine, you know, barley bread, that, that was really the food of the poor. And barley was frequently used as feed for horses and, and mules and donkeys. So symbolically, you know, the barley loaf represents a farmer, Gideon. And the tent uh, represents nomads. In this case, the Midianite army who has traveled to Israel bent on invasion. So in essence, you know, what the, the Midianite who interpreted the dream, what he is saying is, well, this, this poor nobody farmer is the one who's going to defeat us. But you see here how God is already beginning to generate fear into the hearts of these Midianite soldiers. Now Gideon, on the other hand, after being so reluctant, you know, in the previous chapter, he is all in. He is ready to have church. You know what I'm saying? And he, that's exactly what he did. It says he worshiped. That brings us to the third act in the story, the defeat of the Midianites. You see that in verses 15 through 22. In verses 16 through 18, Gideon goes back to his men and he explains this torches, trumpets, and jars strategy to his men. Now, again, by Near Eastern, uh, ancient Near Eastern standards, the weapons that Gideon's men were going to be using, I mean, they're a joke. Utterly ridiculous. Torches? Trumpet? Really? I mean, you, you might as well throw ramen noodles at the Midianite army. Now, the trumpets were likely shofars, you know, that are made from a ram's horn. The torches were, were uh, rags that were soaked in... in, in um, and oil and wrapped around sticks. And the, the jars were probably medium-sized pitchers that were used to conceal the flame until it was time to break them. So on the surface, you know, this choice of weapons seems just as absurd as sending 300 men against 135,000. But you know what? Gideon and his men were obedient to God's plan. And verse 19 kind of details the battle plan. Gideon and his men, they encircled that Midianite camp in the middle of the night. And they broke the jars to reveal the torches. They blew the horns and they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, verse 22 is where it gets really interesting. It says, When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other 
with their swords. God had orchestrated the perfect storm of circumstances. The element of surprise, you know, the fear that had already been generated in the Midianite camp, and the supernatural hand of God caused 135,000 Midianite soldiers to turn on each other. Now, as you study this passage, you know, there are a lot of different conclusions that you can draw from this account of Gideon and his small band of warriors for God. Uh, as you study chapters 6 and 7 together, I think the one theme that really comes through, you know, the most l loud and clear is this, that God's ability to use us surpasses our confidence in his ability to use us. Gideon was a doubter, at least in the beginning. He tested God. And eventually he learned that the battle was already won before it started. That all he had to do was to be obedient and God would take care of the rest. You see, everything in this story is not pointing toward the mighty man of valor, Gideon, but to a mighty God. God is the protagonist of the story. He is the deliverer. I mean, 300 men? Torches, trumpets, jars. The whole point was for God to show up and show off, to demonstrate his power on behalf of his chosen people. So yes, Gideon's story does show us that God's ability to use us far surpasses our confidence in his ability to use us. That's the big idea in chapter 6 and 7. But I think there's also a point of application for the church today that we can draw from this passage. And I think, I think it's basically this, that there are two types of people in the church today. First of all, there's those that God refuses to use, but then there's also those that God rejoices to use. Let's take a few minutes to examine the people that God refuses to use. First type of person that God refuses to use, the fearful. God would not use Gideon's fearful men. That's why verse 3 says, whoever's fearful and afraid, let him return. Gideon's fearful men overestimated the enemies of God. They were the type of men who found problems in every answer, instead of an answer to every problem. And how many of us know people like that? I mean, unfortunately, every church seems to have its group of naysayers, you know, people whose motto is, oh, it, it can't be done. Oh, oh, pastor, no, you can't preach against sin. That might offend somebody in the community. Then they're going to write a letter to the Texarkana Gazette. Man, they were all going to be in trouble. Folks, we should never apologize for who we are. We should never apologize for being Christians, for the truth about Christ, about the gospel, and yes, about sin. Yes, sin, sin is still bad. Hell is still hot. But God loves us, so Jesus saves. That's still true. We shouldn't be so fearful of what people think about us that we apologize to the world for being a believer. Oh, but some people are going to say, well, you know, we can't do this. It's too expensive. Pastor, we can't build on that land. Bank won't approve our loan. I mean, just gloom and doom. Let me tell you something, folks. God is our bank, and he ain't broke. All right, that's bad grammar, but that's good theology. God has all of the resources we could ever possibly need. Philippians 
You know, he, he, he promises Paul that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. He's given us what we need. We just need to choose to use those resources he's given us to glorify him, to take steps of faith and to see him work. Oh, but it can't be done. You know what? When Satan tries to tell me that it can't be done, I remind myself of the story of Abraham and Sarah. You remember how the, how the angel of the Lord came to Abraham? Hey, you're going to have a son. Now, Abraham and Sarah, pardon the expression, but they're as old as dirt. You know, and she's barren. And when Sarah overhears the angel of the Lord telling Abraham she's going to bear him a son in her old age, she literally laughs out loud. And the angel hears us, hears her, and he simply responds in verse 13 by saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Yeah, see, I think the answer you're looking for is nope. No. But I got to ask, are you one of those people who believes it can't be done? So fearful, you know, thinking, thinking maybe God's too small. I mean, does God seem small to you? The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, that, that, uh, that God measures creation in the palm of his hand. That's not the mark of a God who is small. All right, so, so far we've seen the first type of person that God refuses to use is the, the, the fearless. I mean, the fearful, not fearless. Yeah, I got it backward there, didn't I? Scratch that, reverse it. All right, the second group, that's from Willy Wonka, by the way, if you didn't get that obscure pop culture reference. Uh, the second group is the faithless. God refuses to use those without faith. It makes me think of the famous agnostic Voltaire. Voltaire stood watching a funeral procession pass by, and as a high crucifix passed by, he was seen tipping his hat. Friend comes over to him and says, well, are you finally a believer in God? Voltaire says, no. We salute, but we do not speak. Are you like that? Are you someone that just kind of goes through the motions of church? You know, maybe, maybe you come here because it's a family ritual. That's what your family's always done. Maybe, you know, one of those people that just sort of acknowledges God, you know, giving him lip service, but not really possessing true faith, never consciously choosing to give your heart and life to Christ. I think as we read this story, some of Gideon's men were faithless. Those who got down on their knees to drink and plunge their faces into the water, man, they took their eyes off the nearby enemy. You see, the only thing that mattered to them was their own physical needs in that moment, not the things of God. These guys didn't have faith in a God whose battle was won before it even started. And sadly, there's a lot of people in the church today that are like those men. You know, their desires, physical or otherwise, take precedence over the things of God. I mean, let's be honest. You know, there's a lot of folks that, man, you know, they would rather watch TV or go to the movies when the pastor's out of town or, you know, and instead of spending time sharing our faith, man, we're on the phone, spending countless hours making jibber-jabber, or, you know, maybe thumb-typing on your smartphone, talking a lot, but not really saying much. <laughs> we went to a, a couple last night from the church uh, for dinner, and they were telling me about a, a, a friend who, who called up to talk, and just talked, and talked, and talked. And when the phone hung up, the, the husband, the wife asked the husband, hey, why did he call? And he said, I really don't know. 
You know, or instead of spending time reading the Word of God, you know, we're, we're flipping through the latest self-help book, you know, you know, live your best life now. Um, you know, we're, we're flipping through Reader's Digest, we're looking for the quotable quotes, or laughter is the best medicine section, or we're scrolling through Facebook for the 12th time today, instead of tithing. You know, maybe we're spending that money on the most elegant restaurants or latest fashions or a new car because we want to keep up with the Joneses. That was my best game show voice, by the way. A new, never mind. Um, God refuses to use the faithless, those who do not put him first. So God refuses to use the fearful and the faithless. But let's shift gears because this stuff's been kind of negative. Let's get to the positive stuff. Let's talk about those types of people that God rejoices to use. First of all, God rejoices to use the daring. God rejoices to use men like the, the apostles, men like Paul and Silas and Barnabas, who boldly proclaim the word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 107:2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now, you want to talk about being bold and daring? Back in 1970, June 1970, David Ure made a daring move. He and his family in West Virginia had been involved in a nearly fatal car accident, and they needed the immediate services of a neurosurgeon. Now, David, the husband and father, he suffered minor injuries, but his wife, Donna, had a broken back and a severe scalp injury, and, and she was five months pregnant. Doctor said she needed immediate attention from a neurosurgeon if she was going to survive. Well, he was desperate. He had already tried to charter a helicopter to fly her to Washington, D.C., where the nearest adequate medical care was. He failed. Finally, in a bold move, he said, I'm going to call the White House. And that's exactly what David did. And the short version of the story is President Nixon's presidential helicopter, Marine Corps One, was immediately dispatched to Yuri's aid. And both Mrs. Yuri and their unborn son were saved. A daring move that really saved his family's life. Well, you see, the 300 men that were finally selected to wage this battle against the Midianites, they were men of boldness and daring and when it came time for the army to take a break and quench their thirst, what did they do? They just jump in the water and start thrashing around? Well, no. They were very careful, very cautious. They kept their weapons and their armor in place and kept their eyes on the nearby enemy. They were prepared. I mean, kind of like Boy Scouts. They were prepared, but they were daring. Most importantly, they kept the things of God first. So God rejoices to use the daring. God also rejoices to use the dedicated. I mean, even Gideon, if you've read the story, you know he wavered in the beginning. He was so wishy-washy. In fact, it, it really appears that he wasn't fully on board with God's plan until God allowed him to hear this Midianite's dream. But in the end, Gideon was dedicated. He was dedicated to doing what God had instructed him to do. And so God favored Gideon by allowing him to overhear this conversation between these two Midianites about a dream. One had a dream that they're going to be conquered. The other says, well, this is none other than, the, than, than Gideon, son of Joash, man of Israel. But do you remember what they called him? Oh, that barley loaf, Gideon. 
That cheap little barley biscuit, Gideon? See, in so doing, they were calling Gideon a nobody. Let me tell you something, church. God uses nobodies. In fact, sometimes the somebodies are so full of themselves, they can never be any, any possible use to God because they want the glory for themselves. Jesus addressed that in Matthew 6. Reminds us to, uh, not to do your works of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God uses nobodies. I mean, think about all of the ordinary people that God has used to turn this world upside down. There was this shepherd boy named David became the greatest king in the history of Israel. A simple Jewish girl named Esther saved her people from destruction by simply standing up and doing the right thing. A woman named Deborah, who led the armies of Israel into battle when everybody else was just too wimpy to commit. And God called two ordinary fishermen, Peter, John, to speak his word with boldness. God uses the dedicated. Back in July, Christy and I got to spend four and a half days in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, okay? Now, if you're American, it's Edinburgh. If you're, you're from Scotland, it's Edinburgh, okay? So we went to Edinburgh, and don't ask me to pronounce it that way again. It's too hard to roll the... Anyway, among all the statues and plaques and memorials that we saw in this, in this city with a rich sense of history. Probably the one that really stood out the most, you know, more so than authors or state, statesmen or, or people who made breakthroughs in, in medical science. The one that really captured my attention was a little, a statue of a little Sky Terrier dog called the Greyfriars Bobby. Now, this stray dog had actually been adopted by a local constable, John Gray. John Gray was a night watchman, a, a Bobby. And when John Gray died, this little dog followed the funeral procession to Greyfriars Cemetery, staying at the side of his master, keeping watch. Now, people tried to take care of it. People tried to, you know, take it home. He invariably would run back to the Greyfriars Kirkyard. Uh, they tried to feed it. In fact, there was one pie shop there that uh, really treated the dog every day. And when the one o'clock bell sounded, he ran to the pie shop. They gave him a meat pie. When he was done, he went right back to the cemetery to watch over his master. Now, the short version of the story is that little dog waited for his master for 14 years until the day it died. Which begs the question, if that little dog can have that kind of dedication to a dead master, why can't we have that kind of dedication to a living Lord? God uses the dedicated. All right, here's the final one. God also rejoices to use the devout. And that kind of goes hand in hand with the dedicated, those who are devout. Back in the second century, about 100 years before Emperor Constantine would legalize Christianity, Pliny, who was governor of Bithynia, was conducting trials 
of suspected Christians who'd been brought to his attention. And he writes a letter to Emperor Trajan to ask how the Christians should be treated. Now he details his method in the letter. He says, I gave these men chance to invoke the gods of Rome, offer sacrifice to the image of the emperor, and finally to curse the name of Christ, adding, none of these acts, those who are really Christians, can be forced to do because they were devout. They were unwavering in their loyalty. See, for a Christian, the, the person who is devout is the one who holds God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit to be sacred. Those who hold sacred the Word of God and are determined to live their lives by it, those are the devout. God rejoices to use those who would live devout lives, to use those who'd be a vessel for His glory. Now, what's interesting about this story is that this whole torches, trumpets, and jars strategy, while it may have seemed strange to Gideon and his 300 men all those years ago, probably seems strange to us today, did you know that God still uses the torches, trumpets, and jars strategy? You see, the torches are our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The torches are our lives. The trumpets are our voices. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Psalm 107.2. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Romans 10.9. Go therefore and teach all nations. Matthew 28.19. And the jars to be broken are anything that hinders our service to God. Anything that, that prevents us from allowing that light to shine in our lives. Anything that comes between you and God, anything that you place in a, in, a, in a priority higher than God, that is your God. I mean, whether that God be your, your job, your family, sports, your hobby, cars, friends, food, alcohol, drugs, sex, even the senior ladies quilting club, anything that's more important to you than God, that's your God. And that's the jar in your life that must be broken. So the question of the day really is, am I one of those people that God refuses to use? Or am I one of those people that God rejoices to use? Am I fearful and faithless? Or am I daring, dedicated, devout? Can God use me? He used a guy named Bud Walker this was several decades ago now, but two young preachers came to the northeast Texas town of Royce City for a revival meeting. Two preachers tried to witness to Bud. Well, Bud he was a deaf mute. Or I guess if you're into the politically correct labels, you could say he was audio orally challenged or audio linguistically impaired. But they tried to, to witness to this deaf mute guy, Bud. And he just, he makes this heart-wrenching sound that a deaf mute makes when they try to speak. But they weren't ready to give up. They actually went out to Bud's house. They talked to his father, his mother, his sister. And the father says, you know, well, I've been able to kind of teach Bud how, how to do things around the farm, 
things like that. And, and with the mother, it's the same song, second verse. Well, I've been able to, to teach Bud, you know, the, the workings of the household and that kind of stuff. They talk to his sister. And she talks about how she used to bring home visual aids from, from Sunday school and vacation Bible school to try to illustrate the story of Christ for her brother, Bud. But they didn't really know if any of them were ever getting through. So they get together, they pray for Bud, and that night the revival meeting was packed. And when the invitation was given, Bud Walker came forward. <clears throat> he came forward, he tugged on the preacher's coat, then he raised his hands skyward, and they brought his hands together as if he were embracing God. He then brought his hands down or to his heart, then to his knees. He repeats the gesture. He touches his Bible, then his knees. He stretches out his hand toward the preacher. And in so doing, he was making it clear that Bud Walker had accepted Christ. <laughs> That's amazing. This deaf mute yell, the audio linguistically challenged guy got saved. But that's not the end of the story. See, after that, Bud Walker began to witness. Bud would walk up to a, an unsaved person. He'd put a caring arm around that person. He'd point to that person's heart. He'd point to his own heart. He'd point to heaven. Then he'd point down the aisle and just gently urge that person forward. And would you believe that in the remainder of that revival meeting, Bud Walker led more souls to Christ than anybody else in the town put together? You know, so, so next time, you know, we're, we're praying and asking God to use us. You know, maybe we shouldn't be praying, God, make me a Paul or a Silas. Use me like Peter at Pentecost. God, make me a Billy Graham. You know, maybe we should be praying, God, make me a Bud Walker. Am I fearful and faithless? Or am I daring, dedicated, devout? Can God use me? Christian, this morning I urge you to do some self-reflection, to just take a hard look at your life. Are you making the maximum impact for God's kingdom? I love that lyric in the first song that we sang this morning, you know, that if I'm not dead, God's not done with me. And that's true. If you're not dead, that's because God still has plans for you. But are you being obedient to his direction in your life? Will you be the person that God uses? Now, I want to take a minute to talk to the folks in the room who maybe haven't come to that point of decision, haven't yet chosen to trust Christ for salvation. My question for you is, to what or whom are you turning for satisfaction in life, for meaning in life, for, for peace is it one of those little gods that I mentioned earlier? Job, family, car, hobbies, friends, sports, food, money. I mean, all those things are good in and of themselves. I mean, they're, they're not inherently bad. They're good. Unless we make them more important than everything else. Here's the thing. While those things are actually good things, none of them will be able to satisfy, satisfy the, the, the lasting craving that you have. We'll never be able to give you lasting peace. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician. He was a physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and theologian. And he wrote this. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man 
which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Jesus, only Jesus, can fill that God-shaped hole, can make you whole, can grant you forgiveness and eternal life. And it's so simple. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.